No, that's the point where people turn off the podcast. I've been trying to make new games for like, what, nine years, and I didn't release anything that works. For different reasons, sometimes the games were not great, sometimes the company situation was not great. But in reality... My, my career progressed quite well, even though I have not released anything, anything that worked. Games and Names Podcast. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the fifth episode of Games and Names Podcast. A place where we talk with different experts from game dev industry and discuss their stories as well as professional experience. My name is Stan, I'm your usual host and also VP of product at AppMagic, an analytical service for analyzing mobile markets and gaining actionable insights. Today, we, as usual, we've got a very interesting, very special topic. And for that, we've got three guests. Well, actually, two guests and my favorite co-host, Yasa Kron. Yasa, as usual, welcome. Yeah, hey, 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 Thanks, man. Dan. So, who we've got today? Well, first of all, we've got Nikita from Triple Dot. He's product director at Triple Dot. Nikita, welcome to, to our virtual studio. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. Hello. And also, today... With us is Vishant from Supercell. He's working as data analyst at Supercell, big times. Hey, Vishant, happy to see you. Hello, happy to be here with you guys. Perfect. So we've got the setup. We've got lots of guests today, and I'm really hyped about it. So what's the topic? Yes, sir. What do we want to talk about today? All right. So it's a really interesting topic for today. One that's really relevant as our industry gets bigger and more established. It's kind of a trend that we see that it's harder and harder for large studios like the like the two that you guys work for to really make another big hit we can call this perhaps a curse but for that i'd like to pass it off to uh, to nikita uh, because you you've written something recently about this would you maybe want to describe this curse a little bit more sure we've been all noticing that uh, it becomes harder and harder to create a new game i mean it's always been hard to create a new successful game really but if you look at a lot of the games out there and all of the games that have been releasing recently a lot of them being made by the small companies or by the companies being acquired by the bigger companies later but i think it's getting harder and harder to make something good in a large company just because the way of they see the games and they see the teams and they see and the way they approach building as well like i've been talking to some companies recently actually and uh, and even I've, I've been told directly that they're putting their best people on the live games and whoever's left being allocated in the new game teams even though that's not the case in many companies that i know but it is the case in, in some large companies that i want to know i don't want to name the names but that's been very interesting to hear that uh, because they're Biggest business is the live games, obviously. So then the new games just get whatever whatever is left. That's interesting, right? Because not that long ago, it was everyone was wild about making new games. You know, you have you have a bunch of successful live uh, live operated titles. You want to grow as a business, and one of the key ways that maybe you could grow is by making a new game. So yeah, it's interesting how how that has changed. I guess we see also that like you know top grossing charts. Are very solid right now. Like the market leaders are the market leaders, and of course, Vincent, you're you're a data analyst at, at Supercell, of course. So that's uh, that must be you know something that you look at from time to time. What do you think about that kind of you know walled garden the top games are creating? Yeah. Well, I think it's it's just the fact that the market is maturing. No, the audience is is maturing. People have been playing their favorite games for years, and the sunk cost of changing game is getting higher and higher. Right. So now the audience is quite established. We have users that have have been playing our games for years. We know people have been playing Candy Crush for years, like all these like forever franchises. So stealing users or like getting users from those games into a new games is getting like quite quite hard. I would say even if you have like a lot of money to spend in marketing, it's not just about the investment. It's also the audience actually wanting to change their game, you know. Mm. So I don't really know how that is actually possible to like <laughs> to, to change or like to make that happen, you know, because the I, games keep being established. I, I mean, the audience uh, is established. Look at the King King example, right? I think it's like it's the best industry example. They've been trying to make so many new games, and and every consecutive games was like less and less and less in the size and then they decided okay let's fo- let's just focus on the life ops and growing the titles that that they had and this was huge like the way they were able to grow candy Cr- original candy crush and soda saga that kind of paints the picture everywhere and i think that's another reason why it's really difficult for big companies to launch a new successful title and 
I also think we should really discuss what is successful title in itself, but we will get to it. So it's not just about monopoly in top grossing charts, it's also about high quality. So as Vincent said, the industry is maturing and it's really difficult to make a new game just out of, you know, uh, out of scrap with cool core gameplay, though it still works. We've seen, for example, vampire survivors on PC with very sticky, interesting core mechanic with pixel graphics, but people were playing and playing it. But it's a little bit different on a mobile, I'd say, and everyone's looking for the magic bullet. Because the standards are so high, as I see it, that most of the companies just kill products that can potentially make a new big hit. That's that's the thing is like almost no games that are being released now can be huge right away. It could be huge from day one. So then if you're a small company, if like if you're a startup or like even like medium-sized company, you release a game, you see some good potential metrics and you hold on to it. Like you try to grow it, you put all your best people in there, you put like you tried everything that you could imagine. If you're a large company like King, I don't know, you have the same example and it's garbage for the king because it, it will not move the bottom line at all like it's going to be like 0.5 percent of their total revenue or supercell i mean supercell i think will be all, like was also like for a while in this kind of like okay we, we have clash of clans we have clash royale we want another one that is the same size and we want another one that is going to be big nobody wants to make a new game that is like oh it's like one tenth of, of clash of clans so one tenth of uh, like everybody wants to be ambitious so then in a large company but i think like this paints the picture it is almost impossible because it's almost impossible to get there in one day so you need to actually have something that is medium-sized and then grow it further and further and further and if you're not ready to go through this basically the medium companies go through this and then the larger one acquire them afterward and that's that's like what the market was yeah and is that the way that the market is going the well the current big players are not going to find that investment and find that success that is meaningful to them, right? To their bottom line. Like I, I remember the story of, of Everdale from Supercell. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That uh, was good fun. I, I quite liked it. And it was, I thought it was doing moderately successful, but not Supercell successful. So didn't Supercell hand it off to uh, one of the, you know, to Metacore companies within the family, right? And for Metacore, it's yeah. a meaningful thing. Could you speak a little bit about that, Vincent? If you can. But the yeah. decisions behind that? Yeah, uh, yeah, of course. I think, I mean, it's not enough to have a good product that has good metrics, right? Like for the big companies, it is about like revenue growth or about bottom line growth. And it needs to be like meaningful on that level. So even if you have a product that has good metrics, that has potential, how long until it will get meaningful in that scale? How long until it will actually contribute to the bottom line? And then, of course, we always talk here about opportunity cost. You know, it's like, okay, with the people allocated into that team, I could get the same amount of money incrementally in Clash of Clans or in Clash Royale. So does it make sense to have this game? Have it se- does it make sense to have this team going on for just this amount of revenue or like bottom line? So then you hand it over to another company, like a smaller company, and for them it's meaningful, and for them it is a business, and for them it is enough to run a company of like 100 employees or 200 employees, and they are quite happy. And, and they see it also differently because for them it is big enough and they will deliver into the game. Mm-hmm. They will actually put the passion into it and, and make sure that it grows, make sure that it it has what it deserves but in here if it had stayed i think and this is my opinion of course i was not in the team it would have always been like eh, should we invest more or we shouldn't invest more it would always be like this dubious investment but then you hand it over to a smaller team and they go all in for it so i think it makes sense I mean, I think we discussed with you recently as well. Like my opinion nowadays is that if you take any game that, well, let's say the initial concept makes sense more or less, uh, and you put enough trust into it, you put good people on it, and you put enough support, enough time into it, you can make anything work. Depends what you mean by work, of course. So like, it, it's not that you can make any game a billion dollar game, but I think you can make it a very successful business, very profitable business with a good profit margins. But then is what Vicente is saying. Like, yeah, you, I don't know, you make a game that uh, makes a hundred k a day, and for Supercell is probably okay. That's just okay. And a, a game number seven that is like below all the other games, and then. Inside the company, there is no excitement. There would be no, like, yeah, no support. It would be like, okay, like, oh, we need a resource. <laughs> Let's take it from them because they're not doing anything anyway. Uh, it's like, <laughs> not not Supercell, but really like any company, I think would be the same. Imagine like having a company of 20 people and you have a game of 100K a day. Then you like you would make anything to make it grow. And then maybe you would bring it to half a million a day with this attitude. And then it would be a huge game. And then it would be, or at least like a first step to be a huge game. Mm-hmm. In the end of the day, I think it's also the question of priorities. So when you have, for example, Clash of Clans or Royal Clash, 
on the ship, and you choose either to invest your time, your money, your resources in either of these two games or Everdale, which is quite alright, but not overperforming, you will have to choose, as Yasa said, each time. And if you give the game away to the family, as we should call it, that's a good word, for, by the way, then you can focus on the things that you consider important. And at the same time, you can see the game, the product you've launched, grow and prosper and, well, ideally become the new big game, or at least be quite successful. By the way, talking about it, I think that's the best time to try and define the successful game. So what is it? What is a successful game? What can we define as a hit and as a breakthrough game? Are these two the same or not? And how the definition of success changes along the way when the company grows, for example. So say, Nikita, what do you have in mind? What kind of definition of success do you have in mind right now? I guess, I mean, uh, I guess it depends on the genre as well, but to me, you just need to see the players are engaging and sticking to the game. I think like that's, uh, I mean, again, what numbers of retention are you looking for? Like is, is very dependent on the genre. Mm-hmm. But uh, of course, when you create a new game, like if, if I would try to create anything new, I would not try to make a new match free game that makes exactly the same everything as the other match free game. That would be crazy. The CPIs are so brutal that uh, it's almost impossible to to proof a successful business case without uh, committing like five years of a hundred people first. And you could see like all the big companies are scared now to make match free, and uh, like uh, I don't know any any of the big match free that's being developed right now. At least uh, from what I know, like a lot of them are opposed. A lot of them are like dis like uh, downscaled etc because not everybody's afraid so to me like the success the, the success is like okay like it's first coming up with ideally with something semi-unique is like something that can bring something new to the genre something that's nobody done in, like in a big way because there are also like there are a lot of ideas that have been done and there are a lot of ideas that's uh, that's like semi-successful but like mixing it with something else I think can bring like a new product and, and like move the genre or move th- or create like a, a little subcategory in a way like what Zenmatch did uh, I mean they, they it didn't up very well, but <laughs> but uh, initially, like they took okay, like they took the the three tiles kind of like puzzle, and they put like a meta on top of it, a different monetization system on top of it. Okay, that was kind of like a new way of bringing something to the market. But then in the in the end of the day, like oh, it's all it's all about revenue, it's all about profit, it's all about like what is the difference between the CPI and LTV? And I think like. To have a really, really, really good game, you, you really want it to be break-even in half a year. <laughs> I mean, it depends on the genre, but if you have something that is break-even in half a year, it is really easy to scale and really easy to invest a lot of the money into it. If you have something that breaks even in two years, it's a stretch because then you don't know how the market would change in these two years. You are not sure if it's going to break even. Like You're going to be like scared. You're going to be careful. And it's almost impossible to get it to, like, to, the, really big, uh, to the really big level. Mm-hmm. So there are basically three factors. First of all, we look at the stickiness, so retention, sticky factor. We see how how the game is returned to the game. Secondly, we want it to be, well, if not brand new, at least having some major changes compared to other genres, other games in the niche. And third, we want it to be profitable in half a year. These two can be factors or indicators of a possible hit or a breakthrough game. I, I don't know if it's an exhaustive list, but <laughs> but, but I would say I think the, the, those are the good ones. I don't know if it sounds yeah. like, what do you think? For me, this is the question I've never been able to answer. I remember when we used to work together, Nikita, it was, oh, it needs to be a top 10. <laughs> then it's, oh, it needs to be a, a profitable game. Here at Supercell in my, I don't know, more than two years, it's already changed so much as well. It needs to be day 30, a certain number. It needs to be first year revenue, a certain number. It needs to be a billion dollar revenue at some point in the life. Like, I don't know, what if this is a successful game? It's, it's very hard to answer. If it was my company, I would say a game that is profitable, that would be my goal. So to have like a company that can pay the bills and the salaries and, you know, and the, the game keeps working. But of course, for a big company, it again goes back to what we were saying before about meaningful. Because it, it's not enough that it's profitable. It has to be meaningful to the top line. Uh, or to the bottom line, it needs to be meaningful enough that you will allocate people from the company there and stop investing in other things. And that's where I think it makes the big difference. And that's where the big companies struggle to find a successful game because it needs to be successful enough, not just a successful even with those definitions, even if it's profitable, even if it pays back in half a year, it needs to be big enough. And that's the hardest thing, in my opinion. Yeah, and then if you look, I don't know, like that's what's a dream games, right? I mean, they, they have the Royal Kingdom now, right? It's called Royal Kingdom, I think, yeah, the, the new, the new, new one in the soft launch. Yeah. And then, I mean, definitely 
I think does not satisfy my second requirement of, of uh, like bringing something new. From the game design perspective, I would say it's a relatively safe bet. Like, yeah, it has a slightly different meta game, but I don't think it's meaningfully changes your experience. And then uh, the gameplay is actually very, very similar to kind of like the proven success of the of the original. So can it be a successful one? Probably. Uh, like, will it be as big as uh, as the first title? Probably not. <laughs> Yeah. You're touching into the genre defining, right? <laughs> like it, it needs to be a genre defining game, or it needs to be like uh, I've heard here in this in the company cultural phenomenon. You know, like something that explodes in the charts or that mm-hmm, goes viral, mm-hmm. or like. But that, it can be like that and still not be profitable, and it still not be a billion dollar game, so, and still have a day thirty retention of five percent. You know, like yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times, like there is this idea that we can create a cultural phenomenon in a laboratory by adding just the right amount of this ingredient and just the right amount of that ingredient and it'll all be perfectly LTV versus CPI uh, calculus gold. I don't know how realistic that is. The great innovation happens uh, in, in our industry generally happens, you know, in, in more that indie space where costs are lower, the companies are smaller. And we've seen time and time again that like a smaller company has that great idea and then it grows and it grows and it grows. So coming back to that first question like that we uh, posed to Nikita, like if is the the definition of success for a smaller studio more flexible and then able to help create the environment for uh, what can become a mega success? Like, is is that now, are smaller studios with less to lose, so to speak, are they going to become kind of the playground where the great new games of tomorrow are built? If, you know, some games never even get to see the light of day at the larger studios because they just don't move that top line needle enough. What would you say to that, Nikita? Are we moving the innovation and new games to uh, smaller studios and away from the big? To be fair, I think like, it was always like this, right? Royal Match was the first game of of Dream, uh, and like, or at least of like of this company. Obviously, they had other games before that. The, the people who worked on it, but it's like I think it's it's always you have like the smaller, the unexpected things made by people who you've never heard about before, because then they have nothing to lose. So then uh, I think it's a risk aversion that happens in the bigger companies. It's like when maybe it's a bit less often so, or at least less often so in my in my current environments. But before it was always like you would bring a, a new concept. Uh, or new idea to the table to the management into the executive team and they would say okay like uh, but where is it proven to work and like well nowhere <laughs> because that's a new idea oh, yeah. and then uh, it would be always like seen as if something already exists that's a safe bet let's do it but in my opinion that's always the worst way you can go like it's not a safe bet like you're just copying somebody and uh, and that's then it doesn't you're going to get yeah, the same thing it, but worse it doesn't satisfy your USP point that you were talking about Nikita there is then not is lack it might have great uh, projected revenues or whatever, but if no one wants to play it, if uh, and you mentioned it earlier, Vincent, I thought that was a really interesting point. The player's opportunity cost, like maybe you didn't use that term for that, but like if I'm deeply invested in match 3X and then match 3Y comes along with the exact same offering, why would I stop playing the game I'm currently very deeply uh, invested in and maybe have already converted in and therefore have this kind of sticky feeling of, oh, I've invested, sunk sunk some resources in, so I should stick around. Innovation is really important. Yeah. It doesn't need to be just better. It needs to be like extremely better, Mm -hmm. like enough for you to abandon your old game that you have like been nurturing for years at this point. It's not like, I don't know, think about your like Gmail account or Hotmail account, MSN. Back then, changing it was easy, but now, nowadays... It's too much. It's been a lot of years already. I have ev- all my life in Gmail. I'm not changing, right? right? It's like the time for changing is gone <laughs> unless something extremely better comes. And that's where barrier is created. Ironically, for the big companies, it seems like they try to trick themselves without even knowing it. So they there is high risk, high reward. And it's totally for indie studios, like in majority of them. Then there is low risk, low reward. But the big companies, they try to lower the risks and at the same time grow the reward. So just to like trick this balance <laughs> this way, if it's possible. And in most cases, it's just not possible. You can't trick the, well, this balance, or at least that's what I think. You can try to tweak it a little bit here and there. But in general, if you want to shoot the stars, you have to risk a lot. If you want to stay it safe, then there is a chance you won't be able to have big revenues, big success, genre-defining, uh, new game design, because it, it just doesn't work this way. 
it doesn't work not only in games, I think it's overall like as progress goes in every in every industry, in every direction, in everything that human we as a species do. No, but also th- th- think about the big companies, right? It's you make a new game and there is a high requirement on everything. So you cannot make art bad. You cannot make anything bad. You cannot make it technically unstable. So you, the expectations is really high based on the other successful games as well. So for example, if a new team comes up with something, I don't know, and the game crashes every fifth launch, but it has amazing metrics. Like, I don't know, if you look at the PUBG, how it worked initially, like the experience was really poor, but people still played and I still played that game, even though, because it was just, it was doing what nobody else was doing. Mm. And then you try to lower the risk. So you say, okay, either we're doing a safe bet or we're doing something risky, but with a small team. So we're going to create 20 small teams that are going to be doing 20 very like unpredictable games and they think okay we're lowering the risks by doing many things at the same time and somehow it's true but then you put the requirement of but it shouldn't crash and it should have an amazing art and then you have 20 teams with five or ten people and you're trying to create something new and like a new breakthrough with a small team with a very huge requirements which is like an uphill battle like from the from the get-go yeah like you, you need to commit with like if you're trying to make a breakthrough, then you and you have high requirements, then you have to have a big team right from the get go, even if you don't know if it's gonna work or lower the requirements. Mm. Also, I think it's very hard to create a high risk, high reward environment in a big company because people have their safe wood job, the safe position, they mm-hmm. have their salary. So it's very hard to create a high risk pressure because at the end of the world, if the game doesn't work, well. We try again. It's not the end of the world. And there's no high reward either because, yeah, maybe the team gets a bonus, but it's not going to be like a hundred million bonus for the 20 people in the team. It's not going to be that kind of high reward. <laughs> so so even if you create these small teams, they don't actually simulate the, actually, the actual startup pressure mm-hmm. or the actual new company pressure. Right. That's a very good point. It's like, well, and uh, <laughs> like, no, no, that's the point where people turn off the podcast. I've been trying to make new games for like, what, last nine years and I didn't release anything that works for different reasons sometimes the games were not great sometimes the company situation was not great but in reality my career progressed quite well even though I have not released anything anything that worked and and I think like yeah it should be evaluated differently like it should be based on different like on different motivation like if you like that's the thing like if you're in a startup you make a successful game you make a lot of money or I don't know, at least definitely greater amount of money than just a salary. If you don't make it work, you lose your job and, uh, and, you, and you go out and then, you, and then you need to find something else. I think that, not that I suggest firing everybody who didn't make a successful game, but at the same time, like creating a different motivation systems, I think that's something that we need to think about because otherwise is yeah like Vincent says like people come to the big company they don't they don't come to work their ass off they come to work from nine to six get a good salary get a yearly review and get a promotion because they created the good code or they created a good design and then they just go on with their day and move to the different project and everything's fine well the company didn't have any new game created yeah i mean there's also something to be said for teams and and how they get better at working together you know some people say that it takes a project before the team uh, is is ready to produce a project that has the potential to be very successful like if you if you are too vicious and say no this team failed to produce that next 100 million dollar game or whatever it is this time around now we have to start over fresh with a new team i think that's not the right approach you know working together making games most new games fail this is the nature of the beast. Uh, as you were speaking about, Nikita, so you can have a very successful and storied career, not necessarily having made 10 big hits, you know, every time you, you touch something. It's, it's really hard to be successful and teams need time to get better at working together, to uh, become more honest with each other, and then produce better results. Well, that's, that's fair. I mean, I think the motivation system should be, well, should be a positive one anyway. Like uh, having, I mean, having certain bonuses attached to the successful games, I think, uh, like would definitely motivate people more to to pursue success. Because it's, I mean, yeah, products, people, design people, yeah, we want to make a successful game because also that kind of like, that's the only thing that validates what we did <laughs> because if if, if nobody plays your game then like yeah what, what did you what were you doing yeah. 
But for the developers and for the artists, it's not necessarily the case. For the developers, they want to create the most stable game, like the good code, like good architecture, which is not connected anyhow with the success of the game. Mm. Artists just want to create like beautiful art, great characters, great locations, which, of course, it's nice if the game is played by many people, but they can still have a portfolio and like a nice, nice art created without necessarily having the results. I think you're right. You need a team to work together for a while. You need also like if you start with a new genre, you need to build experience, etc. So, but I think it's just an environment. Yeah, it's just an environment who you hire as well. Do you put the product first? Like, do you put the success of the product at this exact moment first in the company, or are you building? I don't know a department of uh, of engineering. Like, are you building a department of analytics? Are you prioritizing like using all the common tools? Like, which all sounds great, but in the end, like often actually gets in the way of the of building a successful product, or gets in the way in the processes, gets in the way of thinking. Okay, we need to make the best game. You start thinking okay, we need to make the best architecture that then and create reusable components that other games can use afterwards. And like that all distracts you from like the most important thing. Vincent, you've mentioned a very interesting thing. You've said that during your time at Supercell, the benchmarks and the criteria of success you've seen changing. So if there is something you can share there that would be really nice. So how the pro- this process was built was was the initial criteria. Maybe it was different for different teams or different for different games. How did it work? Yeah, I think calling it a criteria is an overstatement because each team is very in- independent and they, of course, they decide how they want to work and how they want to evaluate, how they want to organize, when to, when they want to ship updates, etc., etc. So that makes every time we make a new game and we have to evaluate it and have a conversation about is this the next big hit of, of Supercell or not, it means that the conversation is also like very fluid and changing mm. and so... It's the fact that there is not a established like green light process of you need to hit this KPI and then you need to hit this KPI and then you get this investment. Because it doesn't work that way, then it also means that, that there is no set in stone goal. Mm-hmm. Some people talk about this magic number of the billion dollar because that's what the other games that we've launched have made. But then it's like, okay, when? Billion dollar lifetime? Billion dollar in three years? Billion dollar in one year? Tom- oh, tomorrow. let's pick Clash Royale. It was uh, Clash Royale. It was, I think, a year and a half, something like that. Let's pick that. Oh, but look at Brawl. Brawl almost was killed and then it ended up making a billion. Or look at Heyday. Made a billion in more years. Or even Boom Beach made a billion in more years. So depending on the day or depending on the game or depending on the context, we talk about, let's say, day 30, this number, or like LTP, this number, or billion dollar uh, in these years, or maybe it just need to be 300 million in one year, because that's maybe what it will be a billion eventually. So it's a very moving thing. It's not a set in stone. And because we don't release so many games, it means that also the conversation doesn't happen often enough. Mm-hmm. So that's super interesting, uh, Vincent. Like Almost like from the examples that you gave, it's like, it's very hard to predict when success is going to come and how it's going to come and every game can can yes. act a little bit differently. I think there's some tremendous wisdom there on the part of, of Supercell yeah. to have this patience. Now, it is Supercell's way and they have a very, you know, everyone yes. is very interested in that because uh, of the cells and of, and of the great success that that has shown. I, um, I've been wanting to bring it up the entire time, but I've been playing the hell out of Clash Mini. The new, uh, the newly uh, soft launched title. At least it's now in the UK where I am located. And I'm my colleague, game designers, uh, and, and I talk a lot about it, about about its potential to reach that point of success. And we were actually discussing exactly this, like what what is going to be the the, the cutoff point. It's like I personally hope that it doesn't go the way of Everdale, that it like stays with Supercell. Yep. Um, but that is an amazing example of Supercell breaking the door down to a genre like auto chess yeah. exists but not supercells auto chess not yet at least well now it does yeah for Clash mini like i'm not involved so this is purely my personal opinion like i've been playing a lot this summer after the the last update i see it personally as a player as a someone who works in the industry and i think this game as it is now cannot make a billion dollars hmm. I think it's an amazing game. I think it's very fun. It has the Clash IP. Of course, that will bring a lot of organic users. It can be a big game. It can be like genre, maybe not defining, but it can be like big in a genre. Mm -hmm. Can it make a billion dollar game? I don't know. Like from the game design point of view or from the monetization point of view, for me, it doesn't seem deep enough. Mm -hmm. If you ask me, I would launch it, but I'm not in the table (laughs) to decide. So, you know, like... That's exactly the thing that we we were discussing as well. Like, is its monetization deep enough? 
is the can we draw enough parallels between it and other uh, Supercell games and that kind of Supercell success? So, but uh, but uh, from what you've said, that conversation is probably ongoing with that team to try and figure out what the timeline yeah. would be to determine yeah. that success. Yeah, yeah, I'm not involved at all there. Pro, like I'm sure there is conversations happening and I'm sure there is a lot of struggle to decide is this a success? It is not. It is big enough. What we were saying before, like, is it a success and what it means? Yeah. Getting back to our main structure, main plot, main questions, yes. let's try to define not just the definition of success, we talked about it and it worked out really well, but also what are the main pain points and problems for both big companies and small studios when making new games. They should be different, I guess, though some of them might be alike. But I think it's crucial in order to understand what can be the next step. So how can we try to work with these pain points and problems and solve them? So Nikita, from your experience, for big teams and small teams, what will be the like top three or top five problems or obstacles when launching a new game. I'm not sure if I have top three or top five. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess the, the the number one that really comes to mind. I think it's always like that you battle throughout the development all the time is figuring out what the MVP of the game is, uh, mm-hmm. and that's a really tricky point because you could launch the game too early and uh, and just see like that's there is not enough content. There is like the game is too raw. Like that there is nothing to look at. Like you're gonna see bad retention numbers and you're gonna think that the whole idea doesn't work. Or you could be I don't know brewing a game for two years or three years or four years, like some companies do before releasing it for the first time, and then you release it and see the horrible KPIs anyway. So I think generally the approach should be is like, okay, release as soon as you can, as soon as you think that it's good enough for you to trust it, but you need to have the belief that it's good enough at the same time. Like you cannot, you cannot sit on it for too long, but you need to give it enough time to get to the point. So I think like that's like really the biggest issue. And second, of course, is coming mm-hmm. up with the right idea because I think we discussed is like, okay, in, like innovating somehow, but like what is innovating? I think that's, you can discuss this for have a whole separate podcast about like what innovation is like what like how do like how do you create a new game like is it like i don't know if you introduce one new mechanic in the match free is it enough enough innovation if you introduce uh, in the meta game and the movement of the camera is it enough innovation just changing a theme that that was never before in the genre is it enough innovation some would say yes and definitely it could work as a successful game and i've seen that changing the theme in the game actually like was the biggest change of the kpis for that game that uh, anything else that they did so so i think like like just finding the idea that that makes sense and then getting it to the MVP stage. I think this is like these are the hardest thing. I think like scaling, you can figure out scaling. Once you see something that works, depends of course, because you can be, you can also build core systems that way that they would not scale or that they econ- economically wise they would not scale. Or like like, like uh, I, I don't know, I, I'm not an expert on Clash Mini, but I assume the game is fun. But like the question, like the when the question becomes like, can I make a billion dollar? Is like yeah, can you actually scale the economy in a way that people can meaningfully engage in the game? and spend a lot of money and then keep enjoying and keep spending for years to come afterward. And like, and I would say like the initial economy of the, let's say of the Clash Royale, like is a bit questionable in a way that like the way the exponentially scaling costs and then and then like lack of desire let's say to introduce new level for the cards like i don't know whatever every every six months to support it so then like this so it just clashes uh like with the fundamentals of that game i guess that there are like three things that i named but uh <laughs> it's like at the same time it's, it's getting like figuring out where the mvp coming up with the idea but also thinking how it could scale as well potentially even though because you can focus on amazing core gameplay that would just be not fun after five days it is true and there is a good observation you've made so and i think that's the biggest difference between mvp for games and mvp for apps or products with app or product there is a pain point or problem you help to solve for your client it can be measured it can be understood and then your mvp should be focused around it so you know what to what to cut and what you have to leave there. But with the games, it's really tricky because your main pain point is basically having fun. So, and then we have the question like all this, what is fun, how to measure it? And what should I cut and what shouldn't I cut in order this game to still be funny, but not to end up in a development hell when we try to introduce all the features that we want to introduce, all the implementations, all the different stuff that we want to just uh, throw in this big cauldron. So 
it's really difficult to make, I think it's even more difficult to make MVP of the game than of a product or an app because it's much more difficult to define what should be there and what shouldn't. Yeah, I think that's like, I think you can have infinite conversations uh, like about it, like even about the basic stuff, like sounds. Like, do you need to have an amazing sounds in music and your MVP? You could argue yes, because that's like part of the experience. You could argue no, because 30% of people probably play with sound at best. Or even, even if they play at sounds, uh, sending you analytics that they do, they're doing it in the metro and they don't hear it anyway. <laughs> That's just one aspect. But it's like when you think about the gameplay, when you think about the economy, when you think about like amount of content that you need to actually measure. And some games have a, have a horrific retention day one and at the same time have an amazing tale afterward. And then you would look at their day 90 and then you're like, okay, that's great. So I think there are as many there are games, like there are as many different scenarios as, as to finding like what an MVP and like and how to prove that this MVP actually works. Because if if you see day one, great day one, like do you double down on this game or, or like or is it nothing? Because there are <laughs> there are different ways of thinking about it. Like some people say, okay, day one is nothing. Show me day thirty. Yes, I think for me it has changed a bit because I remember when we used to work together, Nikita. MVP was very scrappy and <laughs> like really testing the very very like tutorial and the MVP like maybe thirty levels or fifty levels of a match three game. But here I have to say that there is much more care for all the details. But then you actually see it when you actually see the product. You're like, wow, fuck yeah, this game is cool. Like you see Clash Mini or you see Squadbusters and you see all the details. You see all the sounds. You see all the interactions, and it adds all adds up. And it actually, I mean, of course, I cannot ever prove with metrics or with <laughs> with numbers that had an effect, but it all, all adds up to the experience. And I'm sure it, it influences. And for me, one of the biggest pains of having a small team is that even if you prove that the MVP works, then you cannot go fast enough. You cannot develop the game fast enough to what it needs to be like for being meaningfully successful. Let's say Clash Mini as an example. Let's call that the MVP. Okay, it works. It is fun. Now, let's make it into a billion dollar game that is going to be played for 10 years. You need so much. You need so much features. You need so much content. You need so much more on top of mm -hmm. that, that with a small team, it's very hard to, to catch up. I don't know. You need to find people passionate about each of these things. Like, even if you say, like, sounds, even if you say, I don't know, the, the gameplay, even if you say, like, you need to find people, like, you have to have people on the team who are passionate about making the sounds kick ass. You need to have people who, obviously, I mean, usually have people who are passionate about gameplay, otherwise, what are you doing there? But, like, a lot of the aspects, like, uh, the sounds, the UI, the usability of the UI, the, like, there are just teams that don't have necessarily these people, but, like, I think you need to think about every aspect of the game, uh, especially UI, uh, because it's like it's in the end the way that people interact with your game so definitely so i've agreed a lot of the things that were said and i definitely think if you're going to release a game out into the market as your mvp you need to think about a lot more than just you know then sound comes in then all kinds of uh, um, what i would call secondary layers to the experience that core experience but in order to mvp and test the success of your core game, you do not need it to be looking beautiful. In fact, it's a huge risk of waiting too long to put it in front of players in one form or another, whether that's your buddy that is your, your roommate, or whether that is, you know, a small group of playtesters you're able to bring in off the streets. There's a, the old adage in game design is like, if it's fun, it better be fun on paper as well. Like, like paper prototyping, maybe it's hard to do with certain, with certain kinds of games for sure, but simple, you know, even in, in script engines, it doesn't have to be full on airtight code, you know, like you should be able to build it quickly and put it in front of people and confirm it's success. Otherwise, you're definitely wasting all your resources trying to build Clash Mini without ever testing if the core USB works or is, is interesting. Yep. And that, of course, large studios know this. Like, um, especially if you've already cut your teeth on your first or second games that are out there, you have some idea of how games need to be made. It's important to mention that. Yep. A large company knows this, but they, but they still want a very good product to be released. It's like, I mean, I don't know, like half of the times from what I've heard and from what I've seen in both my own experience, it kind of like, yeah, it's it kind of goes one way or another, but many, many, many like executives want the product to go in soft launch in a very good state. Like that's kind of like the face of the company, our games. Like we cannot put a bad product out oh, there. Oh, I totally, like, I totally agree. Remember, I was just saying like this is before we get even to a green light for production, you know, by then you've hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, test yep. your games multiple times before green lighting <laughs> them into production because you want to know, does it even work a little bit? And then Nikita, of course, I understand like large studios, they, there's like certain standards you need to, you need to reach. And I'll be honest with Clash Mini, like it delivers on the standard 
I expect from a Supercell game. Like if it was like a janky mess and didn't look good, I would be like, what is this? I'm shocked that Supercell would put this out there. But I think it's very charming and, and well, it's a beautiful thing. But then, uh, like, I don't know if you... If you've played, but uh, there was recently a flood rush. Uh, yeah, the beta beta test. I did. Yeah, I played. I think the art looks amazing. Like I just love the art. Yes. The gameplay, <laughs> not great. <laughs> like the gameplay wise, like the game felt really raw. Like in a way that you like you could not meaningfully impact actually outcome of almost any interaction in that game. The moment the interaction started happening, so I think like the art was definitely overdone for the stage of that game. Like I think like it to me it looks as a Pixar movie, but at the same time it doesn't play like one. All right, so let's see if we can break the curse, if we can, if we can overcome it, and if we can give some practical advice here to um, to the teams and, and the individuals listening to this podcast. So, what would you say, Vincent? Who has more chance of hitting it big in a meaningful way? Is that a small team or a big team? Big studio, small studio. What would you say? <laughs> I I think the chances are independent. Like every game has equal chances. It doesn't matter. Of course, you build experience and what you were saying before matters. Like if you go multiple times with the same team, you accumulate learnings, you get more efficient, you learn what matters, what doesn't matter. Like you refine the MVP, you understand which features are important, which are not. So there's a lot of learnings that can influence the development. But unfortunately, I don't think they de- affect the outcome. So your development can become more efficient, maybe your game becomes more streamlined, and it be- maybe it's a better product, but that doesn't mean it will be a success. And that's the, for me, that's what I like from the industry, to be honest. Oh, you like it? Okay, that could you talk a little bit I more like about it. that? There's like, there is like a lack component, right? You like uh, a lack component, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, or like, yeah. I, I kind of like it in the sense that like, you know, great games can come from anywhere, like, you don't yes. know. You know, and sometimes yeah. the thing that looks like it won't be a big success can become the next greatest thing. Yeah, it keeps the industry fresh in the sense that everyone can believe that they can make it. Otherwise, it would be only on the big studios because they have the resources and the technical capabilities and the engine, blah, blah, blah. But it's not about that. That just makes your process better, but it doesn't mean it makes your product better or it doesn't mean that you're going to release it at the right time or in the right market or like there is some other factors that are not dependent on you. And I think that's where it doesn't matter if you're a big studio or a small studio, to be honest. Nikita, do you agree? Oh, sorry, Stan, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, sure. I was just wanted to interrupt for a bit. That's one of the reasons I, I too believe in equal chances, but like deep in my heart, I really want the probability to be a little bit on the small studios part because of all the resources that big studios accumulate because of the, all the monopoly they have right now. It's just the question of coming up with something fresh, new, despite of all things. It's just romantic. So I love it. I think it's the team that matters. Uh, of course, it's idea and the team that matters. I kind of agree that in a way that, okay, yeah, it could, it could happen in a big company, it could happen in a small company. I think it's just this environment or this kind of team is less likely to appear in a big company. And also, definitely, Supercell is, is a huge outlier to any other large company out there. Like, Supercell is, traditionally was building small teams, independent teams, teams that do whatever they want or like whatever they believe in. And that belief of the team was always valued and supercell which is not the case usually in the industry and in the in, in other companies so i think you need to have a team that has an idea and that truly passionate about this idea but everybody not just the game designer uh, game designers well mostly always are uh, passionate about what they're doing uh, at least if it's their ideas but the developers the artists and it's not that they are passionate about coding it's that they're passionate about the game so that they prioritize the quality of the gameplay the experience than anything else if everybody in the team like this then i think it's much higher chances than any process or anything else the game would actually turn out well because they will play it together they will discuss it together they will show it to their friends even if you don't have the process of whatever ux validation then you just naturally people who are passionate they would not be able to stop stop talking about the game that they're making and stop showing it to their friends and their other colleagues etc so that would naturally happen and then bigger companies have bigger resources of course it's easier to make it for but it's also much harder to make a team of people like this and then uh, and then it's much less chance of that the big company gives the team the chance of selecting whatever they want to make as well and that they are truly passionate about so and i think over time like uh 
you also mentioned like about the passion. I think now the game development becomes more mainstream in a bad way, <laughs> in a way that before only the passionate people who are passionate about the games were coming to the game development because it was kind of like a, a geek industry of the people who play games. But now I think it's more and more and more becomes just work. So like, it's like people go and learn programming or learn game design and they just go work as a game designer as before they were going to work whatever, an office job in the bank. And I see more and more and more people like less exciting about gaming. Yes, they come doing good job, but they're less exciting about actually be passionate about the game that they're making. It's just they're doing the job. And that's really worrying the more mainstream it becomes. Yeah, I think you're really on something there, Nikita. Like having passion in the thing that you're doing will create that sense of oh we this purpose behind what we're doing and games made by people who love them you can feel that as a player or at least i i like to think that you can um and you know it, yeah. look it, it might be a bad thing that the industry is becoming more this way but i think we can maybe safely say that the, those companies that are filled with those kinds of attitudes will not see great success i mean if your hypothesis holds nikita and i would like it to almost because i would like the passionate in our industry to be rewarded with success and projects that are led and, and filled with people who love the thing that they're doing over those who are just like, ah, we'll make match, match three game number 7,500. There is a little tradition we've got here at Games and Names. So in the end of each episode, we try to recommend, let's go with one game for our listeners. So one game that you've played recently and loved, that you played some time ago, but you really want people out there to know about it. Maybe that you didn't love, but for some whatever reason, you just can sleep at night and think about it can work as well. So Yesa, should we begin with you? Sure. I was just looking at the at my page of my phone full of games. Um, <laughs> I I don't know if any of you guys have a Netflix subscription or uh, keep an eye on the Netflix games that are out there. But for yeah, those who do, um, I recently downloaded, I've been playing a game called uh, Laia. It's a flying simulation. And it's very, very beautifully done. The mechanics is a little bit hard to get a hold of, but you kind of just soar down a mountainside doing tricks flying fast, diving, going up and racing these other characters. I think it's it's nice. And um, I guess in the theme of this episode, they don't have to worry about being, <laughs> you know, a billion dollar game in any amount of time because they're part of the subscription model, which I guess we will, time will tell how successful that entire idea will be. And we just won't look at Apple Arcade for a minute when thinking about it. But if you have Netflix, I, I recommend it. It's also nice to play some games once in a while that don't pinch you in an economic bind and then say, uh, hey, buy this transaction, please, basically. But yeah, that would be my recommendation. Laya. Perfect. Noted. Nikita, what about you? What's are we choice? talking about mobile games or are we talking oh, about any game? It can games? be any kind of game, so it can be PC console. Okay. Mobile. I would go with Disquilisium. <laughs> now it's a pretty old game, I would say, but uh, I think, I don't know, like from the last five years, it's been the game that affected me the most. Uh, I mean, I think it's just a beautiful experience of a story game, and uh, there are so many interesting moments and interesting things to think about in that game, even though like at moments it's very ridiculous uh, and purposefully so. But the fact that I think that paints like a really nice picture, like the guy who created this game, he was thinking about this world, this specific world, like from being a kid. I think like he even wrote a book now afterwards uh, or, or before. So it's a person who has been thinking about this world like from the, from the moment uh, like he, he started thinking. And I think that's what makes a really beautiful game. I think he would probably not put another beautiful, as beautiful game out there after this. But this like I think really affected me uh, as, as a gamer. I think it's a great one. Sounds good. I believe I've heard that it was created by a bunch of guys who were some kind of a creative group of artists, writers, and they just wanted some kind of media to express their ideas and it just happened out to be the game to be uh, the best media they considered for trying to express their ideas their philosophy the things they want to share with the world so in other worlds it could be a book or a painting or I don't know a, an opera maybe so it's interesting when it wasn't a game because they really wanted to create a game itself but because it was just the best media out there to translate and to just uh, show their their passion and their ideas all right, Vincent. Yeah, how about you, man? It's a hard thing because I've been playing a lot our our game. I cannot recommend that one. 
but I, I've actually had a revival in League of Legends recently. Oh. And uh, not because I like to play it a lot, but I found some people who also played and now we're playing together. And I'm surprised how well the game is aging. Like I can come back to it 10 years later and it's still fun. The same rules, the same gameplay. Even if I'm in bronze, I'm meeting with my friends. We all suck, but it's still so much fun and so exciting. So yeah, just find a game that you can play with your friends and, and do it because it's very, very nice. Yeah, that's that's a very good advice, actually. It sounds really good, and I really love what guys at Triad are doing. I'm really waiting for the console version. I think they want to launch League what? of Legends oh, on Xbox. console version of League of Legends? Yeah, yeah. What? I've heard that they've got a, some kind of an agreement with Microsoft, and they I'm not sure they whether they want to launch it this year or next year coming, but it should be like around the corner somewhere. That's hopefully. sick. But at the same time, they've succeeded to launch it in some way on mobile phones, so Wild maybe Rift. the magic can... Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And it, it plays like a charm, so maybe the magic can work once again and they will yeah. be able to launch it. And there is also, I think, yeah. uh, fighting on the horizon coming from them and MMORPG. Yeah. But they, yeah. Well, they've been talking about that for like five, six years. years or yeah, like yeah. And I think the latter we will th- see like in six years, maybe eight years. So it's not what? a. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I mean, it's not a very yeah. easy thing to make. And uh, they have also got this cartoon, I think it's called Arcanum. Arcane. And the, Arcanum, yeah. And it's absolutely yeah. mind-blowing, but they've been making the first episode like for five years. And the second episode will be in five years. Yeah, also, the se- seasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seasons, yeah. No, seasons, yeah. Thank you. Seasons, not, not episodes, of course. But I- so it takes time. They take their time. And well, yeah. it's good that they have this possibility. Yeah, but I think Riot could be also another example to discuss about this big company success because they are trying to make new games and expanding the IP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't think I don't think if they will be able to launch a game as successful as League of Legends ever, to be honest. Well, as successful as League of Legends, that's a very high bar. Yes. But what they made with Valorant is also brilliant. Yeah, true. And like expand the IP, Arcane. I was never a League of Legends player. Uh, but now I'm very invested in that world because I thought it was unbelievably good. But yeah, I mean, look, like it's another example, indeed, Vincent, of a company that's super massive success, yeah. and very few companies can can say they're that successful. It is true, and yes. it, and I think they don't really need to launch another successful game like that. They just can do what they want, launch just successful games, not their successful game, and it's quite enough sometimes. All right, All right, so. Yeah, yeah, my part, my turn. I think I'll go with, yeah, yeah, I'll go with Goragoa. Not sure you've heard about it. So it's a puzzle game. It was origin- originally released on PC and consoles. Maybe there is a mobile version as well, not sure about it. It is small, so you can, you can compete it in maybe two, three hours, but it's very, very good game design from, from the game design perspective. So it's designed really well and it's very creative. And each time there is this feeling that I really love about puzzle games. When you come up with a solution and you're just like, wow, I feel shivers down my spine. I feel this energy inside of me because I am really proud of myself and it just makes sense. And in this game, there are a lot of situations when it works like that. And I really love about it. From my perspective, it's it's an indicator of a really good, well-designed puzzle game with uh, some puzzles and quests. So Goragoa, it's easy to learn. There is a story told with just pictures, and it's a little bit surrealistic, but it's interesting to follow it. And the gameplay itself, it's very, very creative. So should try it. Perfect. We've got our recommendations, both from the side of how to launch a successful game, be it a big studio or a small indie company, and what games to play in upcoming weeks or months. So really hope that you will enjoy it. Guys, it was a wonderful episode. Thank you once again for joining us, Nikita Vicent. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, sure. So for all listening to us right now, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, and do all this usual stuff if you love this episode. And see you in the next one. Bye-bye. Take care.